Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Last week we talked about relationships because it was Valentine's Day. And uh, so, but rather get into a romantic message, I kind of kind of meddled with you a little bit. So we're going to pull back out and get back into our, our uh, message on the blood. We were talking two weeks ago about the blood of Jesus. And we were talking about how there's the, the shed blood that is offered to God, the sprinkled blood that is applied to us, and the wielded blood that is used against the enemy. And so we talked about how the blood, there are three arenas in which the blood is applied. And we need to understand that. And they're progressive. Uh, if you don't understand why the blood is valuable to the Father, you will never be able to apply it to yourself. And if you don't understand how to apply the blood to yourself, you're never going to be able to use it against the enemy. And so there's a progressive revelation of the blood. And so we need to understand why the blood is valuable to the Father. If you don't understand that, go on the podcast from two weeks ago, and that's where we covered about the power of the blood or why the blood is valuable to God, to God the Father. And, uh, and just as a little review, you know me, I'm going to go back over it. Uh, but what we need to understand is that, you know, Scripture says the life is in the blood, the life that is in Jesus' blood is a life that has fulfilled every righteous requirement of the Father. Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, and I believe it reiterates it in 5, it says, once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. It would not have been good enough for Jesus to be killed in the manger. Not only would it have been necessitated that instead of crosses, we'd wear little mangers on our necklaces, but it wouldn't have been good enough because Jesus was not yet perfected. So the implication is this. This, is, this will mess with us theologically if we've never thought this thing through. Jesus was not born perfect. He was born innocent, but he had not yet been perfected. He had to go through every temptation like you and I and pass the test. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So it wouldn't have been good enough for Jesus to be killed as a baby, nor would have been good enough. Remember where they tried to push Jesus off the cliff and he just kind of slips right through the crowd? Why? God was preserving him because he had not yet been made perfect. Hebrews chapter 2, towards the end of that passage, it says he was perfected in his suffering. So Jesus, was he suffered when he was tempted, and he was made perfect through suffering, and then once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus had to finish the process that the first Adam failed at. The first Adam, in this, his initial temptation failed and gave in to his flesh. And so the second Adam had to come up and uh, step up and pick up where the, la the first Adam left off and go through every temptation like we've been through and pass every test. I, I quoted C.S. Lewis two weeks ago. I really said it wrong. I love how he says it. He says that, you know, worldly people, people who have been through uh, you know, go into sin and, and uh, do the things that some of us used to do, they look at Christians and say, oh, you prudes, you're uptight, you're just too sheltered. He said, but in fact, it's 
the unbeliever, the person who has indulged in sin that has actually lived the sheltered life. They've never known what it is to really face sin because they gave in too easily. It's they who have lived the sheltered life. They've never faced sin and endured and went through the temptation to come out the other side and conquered sin. The fact is only Jesus really knows temptation because only Jesus endured sin to the end. Every one of us jumped off at some early juncture of temptation in our lives and we're learning to stand against temptation but only Jesus rode that thing to the end and broke that bronco if you want to call it that and he came out the other side righteous and pure and so once made perfect Jesus became the source of eternal salvation and he in Philippians chapter 2 says that he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross So the final act of obedience was him giving his life, saying, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he almost took a step off. Took a step off into, yeah, into your hands. And then you guys would have to haul me out by ambulance. So he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he put himself in the hands of God. And God overturned the verdict of Rome It was appealed to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And Scripture says he was justified in the Spirit and resurrected from the dead. And so we need to understand when we talk about the blood, what we're talking about is the righteousness of Christ. And it's not just his innocence, it's his purity. It's not just the fact that he never sinned. It's that he fulfilled all of righteousness and never gave in. It's not this weak, anemic uh, innocence of a child. It's the strong, overcoming righteousness of the man, Jesus Christ, that stared hell down and said, I will not give in, even in the face of death. That's the righteousness that is in the blood. And so when we talk about partaking of the blood, we're talking about we're entering into the righteous entrance before the throne of God that Jesus purchased. Again, in Roman, I mean, Ephesians, I, 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 <laughs> Hebrews chapter nine, I believe it is, it might be 10. I think it's nine. Hebrews chapter nine, it says that Jesus entered the holy place on the basis of his own righteous life. And we need to let out a corporate, wow, that is amazing. That Jesus earned the right. He didn't have to humbly come into the throne room. Like, Father, could I have a moment? Jesus walked in and said, I'm here. And I earned the right as a human being. He had had the right, of course, as the righteous son of God in heaven. But he set aside his deity. It didn't, it's not that he ceased to be divine. He set aside acting as deity, put on an earth shoot. And and first in the form of an embryonic state, came through the womb of a mother, lived as an infant child, went through all the temptation of adolescence and puberty. Yes, Jesus went through puberty. Then as a righteous man, and he earned the right, he fulfilled all of righteousness so that as a man, he could step into the throne room and say, I'm here on the basis of my own righteousness. Righteousness. 
It's an amazing thing. He's the only one that ever has and the only one that ever will. Everyone else will enter in on the basis of his righteousness. And when we talk about entering by the blood of the Lamb, that's what we're talking about. And if we don't understand that, if we just think, well, Jesus' blood was special because he was God's son. He was his only begotten. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a holy affection for his son, absolutely. But it would not have purchased our redemption. This was not some kind of sentimentality that God was entering into. This was a legality, okay? Jesus fulfilled all of righteousness. And so when we talk about entering by the blood... What God requires of man to enter into his presence is a perfect life. Not just sinless, but righteous. Not just not having done the negative, but also fulfilling the positive. He fulfilled all of righteousness. He did every, he fulfilled every righteous requirement. Remember what he said to John, his cousin, John the Southern Baptist? John is baptizing people, you know, and, and uh, Jesus steps up and he said, hey, you need to baptize me. And he said, whoa. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus said, at the King James Version, he said, I must needs fulfill all of righteousness. It's what he was talking about. He said, this is a righteous requirement. By the way, if you've never been baptized in water, you must needs as well, okay? Because Jesus said, I must needs fulfill all of righteousness. This was a righteous act in which he was symbolizing his incarnation. He steps into the waters, his death. He goes under the watery grave, his resurrection. He comes up in newness of life and then the spirit lights upon him and he hears the voice, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And all of that is symbolic of us entering into as well. But Jesus understood there were righteous requirements that he had to fulfill. And every jot and tittle, every every requirement of heaven was fulfilled by Jesus so that he could then step in to the presence of God and say, I have fulfilled all of righteousness. And so we need to understand when we're talking about the value of the blood, it first, the first stage of us utilizing and applying the blood of Jesus is, Marv, remember, remind me at the end of the service, I want Marv to give a testimony. You guys, if I say, let's pray, yell out, Marv, okay? Uh, I forgot to have him come up, so we're going to have him come up at the end because Marv is with us and there was good chance... Yeah, a few days ago, he wouldn't be. So we want to hear that testimony. Okay, back to our previously recorded program. uh, So when we're talking about the blood, there is a progressive revelation that I'm telling you, you will never be able to stand against the accuser and pull out this spiritual weapon called the blood of Christ. You can't use it, Satan word, and that is the context when it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, they love not their life unto the death. You will never be able to use the blood as a weapon against the enemy unless you first understand how to apply it to your own heart. And you won't be able to apply it to your own heart if you don't understand how it satisfies the heart of God. So there's a progressive revelation. And so the first 
the foundation of the blood is that it satisfied the requirement of heaven, the requirement of God. Now, we talked about this last two weeks ago, but I want to revisit this because this is a very important point that we need to grasp. There are two forms of guilt that man deals with. One is the guilt before God. The other is the guilt within his own heart. The one is legal guilt. The other is psychological guilt. The first stage of the blood of Jesus, the shed blood, addresses our legal guilt. We are legally guilty before heaven because we have violated moral law. That is a problem. That is the biggest problem you will ever have. If you don't solve that problem, don't worry about your other problems. That one is the big, is the big kahuna. It's the big problem, okay? You, you are legally guilty before God. The shed blood deals with that. But there's also a secondary problem, and that is psychological guilt. It's feelings of guilt. It's having a guilty conscience. And the Bible does make a distinction between these two. Now, look, at, look with me in he, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 24. But I need the grace of God this morning. We, I always do, but I need an ex- extra amount this morning. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, I love this passage. Because you see this. There are levels of nearness to the presence of God that people enjoy. Let me let that sink in. Not everyone dwells as close as the other. Now, in the New Testament, it's available to all of us. But not all of us take advantage of it like others. And if we're honest with ourselves, if you have any discernment at all, if you have any hunger in your heart at all, you recognize as you look around and you rub shoulders with other Christians, you realize, wow, there's others that walk closer with him than others do. Now, the good news in the New Testament, it's available to all of us. There is a legal right that must be applied to your life. You must press in for those things, okay? But listen to this in the Old Testament, and, and scripture is very clear that the Old Testament was written for us, there are lessons for us that we can learn about the things of God. And one of the dangers, let, let me just get on a pet peeve here, okay? One of the dangers of American Christianity is that we, we've taken the We've assumed the right to print what we call New Testaments void of the Old Testament. I think we really need to pause before we print up partial revelation of God. The Old Covenant is relevant to you and I today. I'm not saying we're under the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant is revelation. It's not obligation There are people who say, you you can put it this way, okay, because we're going to try some rhyming here this morning. There's some who say you're obligated to the Old Testament, you're still under the law. I know people in this region, you get on their Facebook account and they're going to tell you that, how you need to obey the festivals. No, the festivals are revelation, but you're not, there's no obligation. 
okay? But there's others who take it to the other extreme, and it's relegation. They relegate it to the ash heap of history. Oh, those are just old stories. That's irrelevant. And so we're just going to read the New Testament. No, the Old Testament gives you a vision of the God in whose presence you are welcomed into. And you will not appreciate what you have without the backstory of the Old Testament. And so it's not obligation, it's not relegation, it's revelation. There, there, there are precious truths revealed to us through the Old Testament. You know, I, I hear people, you know, kind of just make fun of the scriptures. Oh, you know, they, you know, those people in the Bible, they did this and that. And, you know, the Old Testament, they did. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. God is the author of the, that passage. And so be careful how you deal with those things. I hear people who don't believe in tongues make fun of people, you know, speaking in tongues. Whoa, even if you don't believe it's for today, my friend, God was the author of people who spoke in tongues. It was his gift. And we've got to have a little bit of fear of the Lord. And I think that much of the absence of the fear of the Lord is because we ignore the old covenant and just jump right into the new. We're celebrating that we have entrance, but we don't have a real understanding of what we have entrance into. So listen to what it says here. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. So what it's saying is that there's Moses, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, uh, and 70 elders. They were all going to come up on the mountain and they were going to worship at a distance. But Moses was allowed nearer. And the people may not come up with him. And so there were three levels. There were, there's the people that would look out afar and see that this cloud of thunder and lightning settle. And Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders would come with Moses and go up on the mount. And they were to worship from a distance. But Moses was allowed nearer. And it's this picture of levels of proximity. And the fact is, in the new covenant, we're all welcome to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. But the fact is, we know not everybody lives at the same level of intimacy with God. And that is not because of an unwillingness on God's end. There are people who are hungry, and your hunger is very much a lid on your life. It will determine how much of God you have. You say, well, I've, I got them all when I got saved. Yes, legally, but are you living in that experientially? Those are two different things. We have, we have a welcome mat before the throne of God to go in and take advantage of all that Jesus uh, paid for, but that doesn't mean we live in the good of that. And so our, our hunger needs to press in. And we see this, this picture in the Old Testament, there was levels. Then when Moses went and told the people all the words of the law, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. I, I, it's, it's an interesting picture. It's this 
picture of our journey with God. And so the mount of God is a, a, a fascinating theme. Now in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it juxtaposes Mount Sinai over against Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come to Mount Sinai where there's, there's fear and thunder and lightning and all this, this going on, but you have come to Mount Zion. It's where it says, with myriad of angels in festal gathering. I love that phrase. We're invited to come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is Jerusalem, but it's the spiritual Jerusalem, and it's very clear from that passage, it is the church. But there's a journey up the mount, and at the foot of the mount comes this commitment to obedience, and then this is what Moses does. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. So he sent out these young guys, and they're, they're sacrificing all these animals, but they collect the blood because we see in verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Now, it's interesting. So he has this blood, the, the blood of these sacrificial animals, and he takes half the blood and it immediately splashes it against the altar. That is very clearly the blood that is for God. It's going on the altar. It's sacrificed towards God to appease the sacrificial requirements of heaven. But then he had these leftover bowls of blood, this, uh, the, the leftover uh, the, another half of the blood. And we see that what he does is he, spl- he sprinkles it on the people. He sprinkles it. Uh, there's passages where he talks about sprinkling it on uh, Aaron and his sons. Matter of fact, he, he would touch their thumbs, their big toe, and he would, sp- he would sprinkle them with blood and with oil. The law was sprinkled with blood. The utensils of the tabernacle was sprinkled with blood and it was very clearly a second application of the blood that was splashed on the altar what does all this mean it is a picture of the new testament in the new testament there's the shedding of blood as well as in the old testament the shedding of blood which satisfies the father it's what we just talked about in regards to jesus It's the blood that satisfies the righteous requirements of God. In the Old Testament, they would have to do it every year. Once a year, the the high priest would go in and and pour out the bowl of blood on the the lid of the, the, the mercy seat. But there was other blood that was used for sprinkling, and it was to sanctify them. So there was justification, and there was sanctification. There was the blood towards God, and then there was the blood applied on us. And what I'm saying is this, that the legal guilt we have before God is taken care of by the shed blood of Jesus. But it's very clear in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, that the psychological guilt of an unclean conscience is taken care of not by the shed blood, but by the sprinkled blood. 
So there's a blood that's applied towards God, and there's a blood that's applied towards us. There was a blood that was splashed on the altar, as the ESV says it, and there was a blood that was sprinkled on the people. So when we understand how the blood satisfies God, the blood for the altar, the shed blood, that is the foundation for us then understanding how do I sprinkle the blood on my conscience? How do I stand with a clear conscience before God? See, here's a problem. Before we're saved, we are legally guilty, but we feel no psychological guilt. At least I didn't. Man, I sinned with impunity and didn't feel bad about it at all. I'd laugh about it. Man, I'd buy t-shirts that advertised it. I was blatant and belligerent about it. And then, so what was God's solution? I entered into a season where there was strong conviction. See, God's answer for legal guilt, void of psychological guilt, is conviction by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the word conviction means to convince. The Spirit of God begins to awaken our conscience and we become aware of our situation. We become aware of our legal guilt and our conscience begins to bother us. We begin to become alarmed. Hours of visitation all down through history have been marked by seasons of great conviction where people's hearts were awakened. Revival always carries with it an element of conviction because as God takes us deeper, he deals with the things that are standing between us and intimacy. That's true of unbelievers as well as believers. And so before we got saved, we had legal guilt, but we felt no psychological guilt. So God's answer, the spirit comes to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we need to pray for that. I, I believe there is a move of God coming to this nation and to this earth that is going to have as part of it a strong conviction and a tremendous fear of the Lord. I believe the next move is going to bring with it a fear of the Lord. I believe that there was the last move 25 years ago brought a correction to the church because we had... We did not know the love of the Father. We've been rooted and established in the love of the Father. We understand the grace of God. God has raised up some tremendous teachers to establish the body of Christ in grace. But what happens is, years ago, I was in 95, I went to the street ministers conference down in Dallas and Winky Prattney taught a session and he said this, he said, He's a great teacher. Winky Prattney said, walking is a perpetual state of imbalance. Progress in our growth with God will create temporary imbalance. And so what happens is, it, you know, as, as babies, you can see that. The first couple steps, you can tell it's a perpetual state of imbalance. It's usually one step. Oh, poof, kid falls over. And oh, it's a, that is the most brilliant baby that ever lived. You know, and does two, oh my God, he's an early developer. You know, you know and so they, but the kid is just kind of falling and catching himself. And then we learn to do it with some grace. But if we don't learn to 
swing one way and then the other, the only time you're really balanced is when you're standing still. So when the body of Christ makes progress, it has to learn to go from one end to the other. But our tendency as humanoids is that God begins to emphasize something and we grab onto it till we fall over. And I think this message of the last 25 years of the grace of God has been tremendously valuable and essential. This thing of the grace of God and the love of the Father. But I also think it's time for a correction. Correct. I gotta put my hand over my mic. Time for a correction. Because there are people that have so emphasized the grace of God, they've lost the fear of God. And that was what I was alluding to with only emphasizing the New Testament. See, there's this balance. If I was prepared, I'd have a whiteboard up here this morning, but I'm not. So I'm going to have to kind of draw it out here. Okay, there's scales, okay? God, God hates an unrighteous scale. The character of God is both just and merciful. The fear of God and the love of God. The old covenant and the new covenant. Repentance and faith. On this side of the ledger is a revelation of God's justice, which produces in man a fear of the Lord, which causes a repentance because we see the wrath to come. It's when we see God's justice that it causes, we realize, oh no, I'm in trouble. And the fear of God is rooted in the attributes of God's character of his justice. And that we realize God sees all things, he is a just God, and we can't get away from him. That causes a fear of God. But the fear of the Lord doesn't cause you to run from him. It causes you to run to him and cry out for mercy. And all of this is on this side of the ledger. When we, when, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. It causes us to repent. We don't want to sin anymore because we realize it's not the blue light special we were sold we were told sin would be worth it. And we realize it's not when we see the justice of God. And it works repentance in our heart. On this other side of the ledger is the new covenant, the love of God, faith. There's one other. See, fear and love are at attention. Repentance and faith. Justice and mercy. The old covenant and the new covenant. But here's the thing. Faith works by love. Galatians says, faith works by love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. In other words, to the extent you see his mercy, your, the depth of your love goes deeper into his character. But it's this side of his nature that works repentance and shows you your need for mercy. If you don't see your sin, you don't see your need for mercy. 
There are a lot of people who have a weak, anemic love because they've had a weak, anemic repentance because they've never seen their sin for what it is. Frank Bartleman. Lou Engel and I were talking about Frank Bartleman. Found out we love the same books. We wept over steak at Outback. And, or no, it was, it was somewhere else. But anyway, uh, we were talking about Frank Bartleman. I love Frank Bartleman. This guy, he was a journalist who started to write uh, uh, Evan Roberts over in Wales because there was the Welsh revival was going on and he was living in Los Angeles. He said, pray for us. We're contending for revival here. And Evan Roberts' little daughter died and he cried out to God. He said, God, I hurt so bad. Either take me home or use me in revival because I can't go on. And something tilted in his heart and God answered his heart cry and they broke into revival and it, the Azusa Street revival and Frank Bartleman was really the journalist. He was a journalist by trade and he was the guy who really recorded the history of the Azusa Street revival. In retrospect, Frank Bartleman years later was writing about the revival and he said this and this needs to really trouble us. Okay, we need to let it get under our saddle and kind of rub us raw. He said, looking back, we pulled people prematurely from the womb of conviction and had to incubate them from then on. Let me say it again. He said, during the revival, we pulled people prematurely from the womb of conviction. And then we had to incubate them from then on. There's something about the womb of conviction that does a work in us that we thoroughly repent, thoroughly hate sin, thoroughly leave it behind and when we're birthed we come out pink and crying and we've forsaken that lifestyle and we go after God with our own heart and if we short circuit that process by overemphasizing you almost can't overemphasize the love and the mercy of God but you can underemphasize the justice of God because that's what we've been saved from. We deserve his wrath. And if our eyes are not opened and we don't recognize that, the gratitude that was supposed to be birthed in that womb of conviction is not there. And we're not, there, there's, a, there's a weak, anemic commitment that we walk in. I had a couple babies that had to be incubated for a long time. You ever seen... Just little, little tiny kids running around. They got those little glasses. They just look so cute. Oh, glasses on a little kid. Isn't that cute? They're just running around. Little old man glasses or little, you know, it just looks cute. Usually those are pre preemies. If they know that a child's going to be premature, they, they try to, I, I forget the stuff they put in to, to develop the lungs because the lungs is one of the last things to develop. They can give something. But the eyes are also one of the last things to develop. So if a child comes out premature, often their eyes are not developed. In other words, the eyes of the spirit are discernment. If you have not rightly evaluated your past, you're not going to be able to rightly evaluate your future. If you don't see your past for what it is, you won't have the discernment to sift through things in the present. Sometimes we need to go back and do the first works and really look at some of those things so that we can break with them. Now, let, let me read you one other verse. I didn't tend, get into all this, but 
Okay, so let me, let me just stress this, verse 6 again, and then we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Listen what it says. Moses took half the blood, put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Okay, so now listen to what it says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I find that the, the order very, very interesting, and it wouldn't have been what I would have initially figured. Look at verse 1. Peter, would, Peter was written to all, okay, no, that's, that's a commentary. <laughs> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and the sprinkled blood. There it is, the sprinkled blood. But I find the order of that fascinating. I would have assumed it would have said this. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, by the sprinkling with blood, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. But that's not what it says. Now again, remember, keep that in mind. Let's go to Hebrews real quick. Go to Hebrews 9. Let me read this to you. Let me use the the written word here. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 11. When when Christ came as the high priest to the good things that are already here. So it's saying as Jesus came, uh, he came as the high priest to the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say not a part of this creation. So when Jesus entered the holy of holies as the high priest, it wasn't a man-made temple. That was just according to the blueprint that God gave Moses on the mountain, he went into the real holy of holies, which was the throne room of God. And then he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once and for all, here it is, having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Look at verse 13. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So he says the blood cleanses our conscience, right? Now look at verse chapter 10. Look at verse 11 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's our blood-bought right to enter confidently because that's how Jesus entered and we entered on his righteousness, not our own. We're coming in on the righteousness of Christ. So if the enemy accuses you and say, you can't go in because you're not righteous, what did we say two weeks ago? It's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Agree with thine adversary on your way to the judge. You agree with them. That's right, devil. I'm not worthy, but I'm not going on the basis of my own righteousness. I'm going in on the basis of his righteousness. And by that, you pull the rug right out from underneath them. If you try to argue with the enemy about your own righteousness, you will fail. And God loves you enough to leave you there until you do. If you try to enter by your own self-righteousness, God loves you enough to help you, to allow you to keep coming up short. The only way in is by the blood of the Lamb. And that is the way we strip the enemy of his accusation. The weapon of the enemy is accusation, and our weapon 
is the blood of the lamb we overcome him by. So now he goes on to say, uh, we enter by a new and living way open through us, for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, okay? In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There we have it again. When the old covenant uses the terminology of the shed blood, it's towards God. But when it's the sprinkled blood, it's towards the people or towards the utensils of worship. And the same is true in the New Testament. So what? let, let me read this again. Listen to, how we, listen to the order here. Let us draw near to God. How? Number one, with a sincere heart. Number two, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So we have it here in Hebrews 10, a sincere heart, full faith, sprinkled of a guilty conscience. In Exodus 24, Moses comes before the people. He says, this is the requirement of God. They all say, we're in, we'll do it. And it was only then that he splashed the blood and sprinkled the blood. And then in 1 Peter, we have this order where he says that we're called unto obedience to Christ and, then, and the sprinkling of blood. And the order is very specific in the Greek. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have assumed... I sprinkle my heart and then I enter into that obedience. But that's not what scripture says. It's not talking about us having a perfect track record on our own. But it is talking about out of a sincere heart entering into surrender. We've got to yield our heart in order to have a clear conscience. Because as I said earlier, there are unbelievers who are legally still at odds with God, but don't have an awakened conscience. And then there's believers who have, they've already been made reconciled to God in their legal guilt. That's already taken care of, but they have psychological guilt. And so the answer for that is the blood. But here's the problem. When people spurn a righteous life and they think, well, I can enter into forgiveness, but I'm not going to live with a sincere heart. I'm expecting to fail. I'm anticipating failing. Matter of fact, I'm planning on failing. I meet people all the time. They're in church worshiping on Sunday, and then they go home to live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and they're living in fornication. And yet they come and worship the Lord. Now, I'm not here to condemn you, but I'm telling you that you cannot have a clean conscience before the Lord if you live that way. And it's not just those things. There's, there's all kinds of things. So we've got to have a sincere heart. And that's not to say we, if someone slips and falls, we get back up. It's, but what I am talking about is this sincerity of faith that's saying, God, I want to live righteously and I'm going to deal with those things on the front end. Because you can have a clear conscience, but it's not by the blood. It's called a seared conscience. There's a cleared conscience and there's a seared conscience. And a seared conscience is when people are 
purposely, intentionally living unrighteously, and they think, I'll sin now and repent later. And they wonder why they don't experience what others experience. And we see in all these passages that there was the surrender before the sprinkled blood and the cleansing of the conscience. Now, when you've surrendered, see, I can only speak from my experience in, in, in this regard. When I, before I got saved, I was legally guilty and didn't struggle with psychological guilt until some, a little band of women at First Open Bible in Ottumwa, Iowa took me on as their prayer target. And all of a sudden, I entered into a season where I began to be troubled and I began to feel guilty. And I, I remember specifically, I was living on the streets, I was homeless, and I was hungry and being the health nut that I am, I figured I'd steal some hostess Twinkies for, to eat. And I went to grab those, and that wasn't uncommon for me to steal things. I went to grab them, and this is the thought that entered my mind. If I, it might have been ho-hos, but it was you know, equally <laughs> nutritious, okay? Ho-hos are better than Twinkies in my estimation, the chocolate coating. And I went to grab them, and this is what entered my mind. It's not worth it, because there'll be a Twinkie's worth of flesh that will come out of your hide for that. There is a scale balanced in the spirit and what you sow, you will reap. Now I want to tell you, up until that moment, that was not my way of thinking, okay? But I'd entered this time where all of a sudden my conscience was being awakened and I was under conviction and I withdrew my hand and thought I'd rather be hungry than lose a Twinkie's worth of hide. Oh, that's a vivid picture, that would hurt. And it wasn't too long till I got saved. Before my conscience was seared, it was dead, I was not convicted. I had legal guilt but no psychological guilt. God awakened my conscience so I recognized my legal guilt. I got saved, my legal guilt was taken care of, but now I had psychological guilt when I shouldn't. It was false guilt. Because my conscience had been awakened to the extent that I was, try, I was trying to earn my righteousness. And so the Lord, whereas conviction was the answer for an unawakened conscience, the blood of Jesus was the answer for a conscience that was awakened that already had been settled by God. Does that make sense? And so God had to begin to teach me but the danger is we get stuck in that in-between place. We have a revelation of righteousness, but we don't, we understand, oh, I enter by Jesus' righteousness, but you're called to obedience to his righteousness. And he's, you, it's being worked in you. You're made, we talked two weeks ago. When you get saved, you're made righteous. That's your legal position, the paperwork in heaven. But your living condition is a process of growth. And then there's bad days. Woo. You know, and you, you're growing in grace. And if we, are, we don't have a, a mindset for that, and we just think we can live in sin with impunity because Jesus paid for it, I'm telling you, you sear your conscience. And the blood of Jesus will not work to to satisfy your conscience because it's the Holy Spirit convicting you to get things right. And it's not that you have to be perfect, but you do have to be sincere, okay? 
It's not that you have to be perfect, but you're saying, God, I want to be living for you. I don't want this sin. And that's the difference. When people cry out to God and say, God, I want to be delivered of this. I'm telling you, there's mercy from God. I, I, I told you, I've told you this before, I told you two weeks ago. The lady that led me to the Lord gave me $60 in 1983 to buy a Bible. I would buy a nice Bible in 1983. And it bought me a keg. And I was, I was so, I felt so distraught and guilty as I drank, drank that, that beer. I was bound to alcohol. But my spirit had awakened. I was born again. And my little embryonic spirit was going, no, don't do it. <laughs> and my big old flesh that I've been feeding for years said, ah, shut up. And he was trying. But my spirit would not be drawn. No, don't do it. And I, would, I was so miserable. And that little tiny spirit, <laughs> I started feeding it. And trying to starve my flesh, and sometimes it wouldn't take no for an answer. But over time, and fasting was a good way to do that, by the way, my flesh would say, no, don't do that. And, uh, and it'd get weaker, and my spirit started, you know, and every now and then you just need to take your flesh and say, you're going to follow me. You know, no food for you for three days. Drag them around, you know, tell them who's boss. And, uh, and, the sins of the flesh began to fall away as, as we're being made whole. And the, the blood of Jesus cleansing our conscience is an important facet of that. Because if you don't know how to apply the blood of Jesus to your conscience, you will constantly be sin conscious. Let me close with this. And then, Marv, make your way up here. I remembered. It, uh, here's, here's how it works. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Feel like I haven't been able to communicate this. Jesus helped me this morning. Ephesians, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, I think it is. It says, They who walk after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they who walk after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. Catch that. You want to walk after the Spirit? then what you do is you set your mind on spiritual things. But if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you will walk after those things. And it doesn't even necessarily mean that you have your mind on the things of the flesh in a positive way. It's not that you're saying, oh, I want that. I want that. For me, the way it worked is I would look at the flesh and say, I don't want that. I don't want to sin. I don't want that. But that's all I was thinking about. I don't want that beer, that beer over there, that, that frosty mug. I don't want that. That's, oh, that's shining, glistening. And I would drink it because my mind was on the things of the flesh. And what we need to do is keep our mind on the things of the spirit. But condemnation will lock you on the flesh. It'll keep reminding you of the things you did. And it's by the blood of Christ that we apply it to our heart to free us from those things. But if you're not sincere and your intention is just to keep doing them and think, I'm going to just get forgiven, you're deceived. And God can deliver you. You just need to say, God, awaken my conscience. Perhaps you've been taught that way. Say, God, deliver me. I want to live righteous. The only reason we sin is because we haven't entered into the glory that awaits us, this side of heaven. Our minds have been veiled, and we need to, we need to have a revelation of what awaits us.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.